Support for Start Making Sense comes from HBO. Don't miss the new season of Real Time with Bill Maher, the long-running, Emmy-nominated talk show covering the week's news and featuring a panel of guests, including actors, activists, politicians, musicians, comedians, and more. Bill Maher's sharp, witty, and unpredictable show is a mainstay for current events, politics, and media. Catch his comedic monologue, his weekly special guests, and his rotating panelists live every Friday beginning January 19th at 10 p.m. only on HBO. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll look at the political prospects for the Democrats in California and recapturing the House, maybe even the Senate this November. Harold Meyerson will comment. We'll also speak with Father Greg Boyle of Los Angeles about his amazing work with former gang members. He's the founder and head of Homeboy Industries, the biggest and best job training and reentry program in America for previously incarcerated men and women. First up today, of course, politics. And for that, we turn to John Nichols. And of course, he's the national affairs correspondent for the nation. His most recent book is Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse, a field guide to the most dangerous people in America. We reached him today in Madison. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Do you want to talk about Oprah for president? I don't know how much I can add. It seems like everybody else is talking about it. But uh, I think that we have to understand that in the United States, there is a, a great history of people giving extraordinary speeches at precisely the right moment and sparking presidential speculation. We shouldn't be surprised by this. It isn't an uncommon thing, but it is something that we should, should, we should all view with a, at least one degree of skepticism and concern. I think it's the degree of skepticism and concern that Oprah Winfrey herself has brought to this. And that is the question of whether we're entering into an era of celebrity politics. I mean, where you, know, you have a Donald Trump and then the answer to a Donald Trump is a, a better celebrity. Mm. Um, and I would argue to you that Oprah Winfrey is a better celebrity um, on a whole host of levels. But that is, that's a new stage of politics, and it is one that, that uh, we ought to consider, whether that's, that's really where you want to go, or is the, the better counter to the moment that we are in uh, an exploration of, of new faces, certainly, which are needed, but perhaps people who have you know, been in the vineyards, who've been working in politics yeah. uh, more directly. Well, one of the things that we have to ponder and consider is Oprah Winfrey's politics. What are they? Uh, Barbara Ehrenreich had a wonderful uh, Facebook post where she said, if Oprah became president, every poor person will be given free a self-actualization book. And I see that Bill Crystal has tweeted, I'm with her about Oprah. I'm not sure Oprah has our politics at all. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. I mean, that is, the thing is that Oprah Winfrey is popular in part because she hasn't waded into every political issue. Yeah. This is a, she is a remarkable woman who has had tremendous accomplishments, uh, but they have been uh, often in non-political settings. And here's the heart of the matter. 
I believe that in 2020, if not sooner, we need to ricochet out of the Trump moment. I don't want the United States to simply move toward a healing, quote unquote, uh, centrism, yeah. where you know we, we pull back from the, the, the worst of Trump and we, we move toward a sort of a, a middle ground that Bill Crystal finds comfortable, um, but don't address the, the fundamental issues that have been uh, left in such disarray by the Trump presidency. Uh, I, I like that in 1932, coming out of Herbert Hoover, we went to, Her- we went to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right? Yeah. So I do think the country benefits by making a big break on a host of issues from Trump and Trumpism. And the candidate that I would probably get most excited about in 2020 would be the person who could do that. Well, we're still thinking about Michael Wolff's new book, Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House. The press has has featured what they regard as the highlights. For example, Trump eats McDonald's hamburgers because he's pathologically afraid of being poisoned. Trump likes to say one of the things that made life worth living was getting your friends' wives into bed. And Steve Bannon said that Ivanka was, quote, dumb as a brick, close quote. That's what we've been told are the highlights and the significance of Michael Wolff's book. Uh, What do you see as the significance of Michael Wolff's book? Well, as a father of a teenager, I, I, what I see is the fact that Trump changes his own sheets. <laughs> he has and a that reason, to me is a revelation. <laughs> yeah, he's terrified of anybody else. Yes. But I, I, I certainly read that with great interest. Uh, but no, what matters in this book is uh, the, the revelations about what people think about Trump's fitness to be president of the United States and the fact that, that there seems to be such a, a, a broad consensus, even among people that, that are trying to make his presidency succeed, that he is unfit for the office. That yeah. is an important yeah. discussion, and it's, it's a framing discussion for the moment we are in. We're about to have the one-year anniversary of his presidency. We should be conscious of that. Secondly, and I think this is really important, Wolf does not deal much in policy. This is really a, you know, a story of personality and, and personalities in conflict. But uh, there are a few points in the book where he gets kind of deep into, you know, how Trump relates to the Republican Party. And I frankly think that the section in which he describes how Paul Ryan, who had been on the outs with Trump and resistant to Trump, at least in some ways early on, uh, ingratiated himself to Trump uh, using flattery and, you know, as, as the book refers to it, sucking up. Uh, to get himself into, you know, Trump's orbit and to help to define some of what happens. The reason I think that is significant is people who aren't in this White House or who aren't in the day-to-day of covering this really need to understand that Donald Trump has far more control over the Republican Party and over Republicans in Congress than some of the day-to-day coverage lets on. It's important to understand that once Trump came to the presidency, a lot of of these people who try to portray themselves as relatively independent or at least, you know, having a little bit different style like Trump or like uh, Ryan, to some extent like McConnell, 
are in fact, you know, really errand boys for this president. Uh, and I thought that came through rather powerfully in the book. Yeah, I, I just want to underline your point that what the book shows is everyone around Trump knows that he's dangerous and incompetent, but they are, as we've seen over the last few days since the book uh, came out, they're circling the wagons. They are covering up what they know about his unfitness for office. You know these people. You wrote a book about them. You called them the most dangerous people in America. Well, they are because they facilitate his presidency. And you know, one of the interesting parallel stories that goes with the book is these revelations about Trump's daily schedule. They, they, but we start to get this picture of Trump as a guy who spends very, very little time on actual presidenting, i.e. the the day-to-day meetings and reading reports and trying to, you know, kind of get on top of stuff. And an awful lot of time in his room watching television. If you step back and you say, okay, well then, if Trump's not presidenting, who is? And the answer is, that he has empowered people in cabinet positions, regulatory positions, some White House positions, to be definitional figures in this country. And yet, we still, day to day, cover Trump. You know, every tweet, every blink of the eye, our media and our political class are still paying far too little attention to what's what's taking place at the cabinet level and the regulatory level. They're changing America often without our informed consent. We don't even know that these things are happening. And one of the arguments I've made is that if Donald Trump stayed in his room 24-7 from here on out, never left the room, even put his phone down and stopped tweeting, the fact of the matter is much of the most damaging playout of the Trump presidency would continue because he's got these people in positions of power who are heading forward, Betsy DeVos, Scott Pruitt, people like that, So we need to widen our focus to look at them as much as we do at Trump. One last thing about the Michael Wolff book, Trump's response to it was to have his lawyer demand that publication of the book be stopped and that Michael Wolff, quote, issue a full and complete retraction and apology. I wonder what you think of that kind of response to uh, tell all revelations about life in the White House. Well, as you know, this is a very big deal with me because when a president swears an oath of office, right, it is an oath to defend, protect the Constitution of the United States of America. There's not like a footnote on that that says, you know, that's for 23 hours a day or or that's for every day except Thursday. No, it's supposed to be once you take that oath, you as an individual submit yourself to this duty. You acknowledge that this is who you are. And it's from when you wake up in the morning to when you go to sleep at night. And what Trump and his people are trying to claim is, well, this book about his presidency, uh, about how he whether he's fit to be president of the United States, is somehow harming him as an individual, something separate from the presidency. So his private lawyers have a right to try and step forward and ban a book, i.e. prevent it from being published, prevent its information from being disseminated. That is an unbelievably horrible precedent. It's far more dangerous than I think most people understand, because what that, what that means is, for if we were to accept it as legitimate, is that every future president could, you know, have a private lawyer come forward and, and try and bar statements, uh, books, whatever, that are critical of him, journalism that is critical of him. It's a terrible, terrible thing. In fact, I think it is so terrible that uh, it it could indeed be an impeachable offense, you know, because if you're, if a president is using his bully pulpit 
to undermine the First Amendment, to undermine our ability to have a free and open discussion about those in power. Uh, I, I, in many ways, I, I have a hard time thinking of a, a more direct assault on you know, one of the basic underpinnings of democracy than that. John Nichols, readhimatthenation.com. John, thanks so much. It's always great to have you on the show. Total pleasure. Now it's time for more on the Trump front. Trump has been attacking California in a variety of ways through taxation, on energy and the environment, on immigration. For comment and analysis, we turn to Harold Meyerson. He's executive editor of the American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page and other publications. We reached him today in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, maybe we should start with the big political news from uh, Orange County, Ed Royce, who represents Northern Orange County in the House and has been there for something like 26 years, just announced he is retiring. That switches his district from Leans Republican to Leans Democratic in November. I wonder if you have any comment on Ed Royce pulling out of his reelection campaign. Sure. Well, I mean, the Democrats were getting restless and the Republicans are now royceless. Uh, <laughs> sorry, just... Uh, impulse on my part. Uh, yeah, Royce is one of four Orange County Republican members of Congress whose districts were carried by Hillary Clinton, who also was the first Democrat uh, Democratic presidential candidate to carry Orange County since the Franklin Roosevelt landslide of 1936, when actually I don't think there were more than 1936 people living in Orange County back then. <laughs> and uh, all four are were regarded uh, as somewhat endangered, and that was before the Republican tax bill uh, was uh, voted into law. By eliminating the uh, state and local uh, deduction, or rather limiting it to $10,000, that has a severe impact on actual existing voters in each of those four Orange County districts, uh, the impact being they're going to look at uh, a much higher tax bill. Uh, for that reason, the, the, the two members of Congress regarded as the most endangered in California, that being Daryl Issa, who only won by about 1,600 votes in 2016, and uh, Dana Rohrabacher, uh, who is, as everyone knows, uh, Vladimir Putin's favorite Congress member. Uh, they were uh, the only two Republicans out of the 14 in California who voted against the tax bill. Royce and uh, Mimi Walters voted for it, but in each of these uh, members' districts, probably about one-third of uh, taxpayers are going to see a significant rise in, in their taxes as a result of this bill, and in uh, Mimi Walters and uh, Daryl Ice's district, it gets close to half. So Royce probably looked at the tea leaves and uh, said, uh, you know, I don't need this. I've, I've been to some meetings of Indivisible in Royce's district, and there, there's already, I mean, there have been people walking precincts, uh, as it were, against Royce for almost a year now, and uh, there are uh, a, a slew of candidates positioned to run against, uh, who were positioned to run against him and are now running for an open seat. So I think this portends what what people were expecting, which is uh, Democratic pickups in the House, 
particularly in California. Let me underline the demographic changes in Orange County since Royce was first elected in 1992. That year, his district was more than 60 percent white. Today, Latinos and Asian Americans make up more than 65 percent of his district. Whites are just 28 percent of the constituents in that district. Of course, turnout is a big issue, and that's why Indivisible and these other groups are so important to uh, help organize and mobilize uh, formerly unregistered voters. And if you look at the demographic a little more closely, one of the peculiarities of Royce's district is that it is a home to one of the largest Vietnamese uh, populations in the country, if ever have any congressional district. And there's a dynamic there that is in, in some ways like that of uh, the, the Cubans who uh, came to Florida. That is to say, any population that is fleeing a communist takeover has historically tended to vote with the party more oriented towards the hardline Cold War policies, which has been the Republicans, a reputation they uh, uh, seem to be uh, in an interesting, ambigu- ambiguous relationship with Vladimir Putin right now, but that, that's a, a side issue. However, we've seen among uh, Cuban Americans, and we're seeing among Vietnamese Americans, uh, a, a familiar dynamic. Um, that is to say, the original generation that fled tends to retain a, a kind of conservative political event, uh, bent, less so among their children and hardly at all among their grandchildren, which is one reason why Florida has become a swing state as opposed to a clearly Republican state. And I, I think this dynamic is becoming increasingly clear in uh, what, what's been at Royce's district, or else Hillary uh, Clinton would not have carried it in 2016. Well, the second big political news about California is uh, the Trump administration's announcement that 200,000 Salvadorians are going to be forced to leave the United States and return to their country of origin, where, of course, there's high unemployment and a lot of uh, gang violence. The Trump administration is canceling what is called temporary protected status for Salvadorians, even though they've Many of them have lived in this country since 2001. They've raised families. Their kids are in college now. Why uh, in L.A., in the Los Angeles area, there are 30,000 Salvadorians. Why does the Trump administration want to get rid of these people? I would also add that this is not uh, disproportionately California, though it is heavily Californian. The the state uh, where Salvadorans comprise the highest percentage of uh, foreign-born residents is actually Virginia. Uh, The D.C. area has a very large number of Salvadorians. There's a terrific Salvadorian restaurant one and a half blocks from where I live. So uh, uh, I I see this all the time. Well, this is the uh, primitive nativism of Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions and Stephen Miller and the primitive nativists and racists who uh, are in that in positions of power, and it it also plays to that portion of their base, which presumably is uh, desirous of creating, uh, making America white again. But, uh, I mean, it's it's a completely idiotic, disruptive, anti-human position to take. Uh, It's not clear what, if any, legal options the uh, uh, Salvadorians here under the uh, Temporary Protected Status Program 
have. They have until uh, some point in 2019, you know, to either secure uh, some kind of legal status somehow or else be uh, expelled. Uh, so it's a pretty grim future that, that most of them are facing. Then Trump announced on Tuesday, kind of out of the blue, that he's for a bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform bill that will be what he called, quote, a bill of love. Do you think this is just hot air, or do you think we're going to get a bipartisan comprehensive immigration reform bill? Well, I, I think we have to take uh, into consideration that Trump has been known to tweet or say virtually anything, yes. <laughs> uh, and and whether to put any stock in what he just, uh, in, in the quote you cited, um, is anybody's guess. You know, I mean, it suggests that uh, the Democrats should be dealing for, in that case, the complete legalization and uh, citizenship right to become citizens not just for the dreamers, but for uh, almost all of the 11 million undocumented folks who are here in the United States. But, you know, it's, it's not clear what Trump's uh, price for this is. A wall? Two walls? Three walls? We don't know. <laughs> it, it's also clear that sort of systemic programmatic thinking, which we already knew was not his forte, uh, we now know that even more uh, with the publication of Michael Wolff's book. So it's hard to know what, if any, stock to put in Trump statements like that. You mentioned the Republican tax bill, which caps the deduction for state and local taxes uh, at $10,000. This is a fiendish attack on the blue states, on the Democratic states, which have higher taxation. I think it's the first time in history there's ever been a tax bill that created higher taxes for the political opponents of the uh, majority party. California is not taking this lying down as the biggest blue state. There is this scheme that if you, well, you explain what the scheme is. Well, there are uh, a couple of schemes being floated nationally. The one that seems to be getting the most traction is to allow folks who would be subject to much higher taxes as a result of this to make contributions, charitable contributions to the state or some state programs, which they can then write off on their taxes and becomes a de facto a deduction, which the federal government now still recognizes. There's an alternative proposal out there uh, from Dean Baker, and we actually, I think we, we're the only publication, the American Prospect, which has run a piece by uh, Dean on, on this subject, which is to really sort of shift the tax burden to payroll taxes, which are still deductible, and employers would essentially pay more but take the difference out of their workers' wages. It's a complicated proposal that has the virtue in some ways of being more progressive than the charitable deduction, but also uh, in California, it turns out, any jiggling around with the state income tax as such requires a constitutional amendment, which requires a vote of the public. So it gets much more complicated. So therefore, California, led by the state Senate president, Kevin DeLeon, is looking at uh, the charitable deduction uh, dodge, which is George Skelton of the LA Times notes, is kind of a crazy idea, but under the circumstances, a, a justifiable one. Kevin DeLeon, president of the California State Senate, who is the leading force behind this idea of making charitable contributions to the state of California, which would then be counted against your taxes for the state and yet still be a federal deduction. Kevin DeLeon is running for the Senate seat 
which Diane Feinstein is refusing to give up. What do you make of that race? Well, I think Kevin DeLeon is, is, has emerged over a number of years as the really leading legislative genius of, of California in passing far-reaching legislation on climate change, on uh, minimum wage, on workers' rights, on creating a, a retirement program for low-wage workers, and, and on, on immigration issues in particular, has really been leading the pushback in the state. He's the author of the Sanctuary State Bill. So in many ways, I think Kevin DeLeon is really the personification of the new, diverse, progressive California. Diane Feinstein, if she were to be reelected and serve out her six-year term, would be 91 years old when that term expires. Uh, but she's also a more conservative Democrat who in the past has voted for the Iraqi war and for uh, round one of George W. Bush's tax cuts. So... Uh, I think on uh, political grounds, uh, the, the unquestionably progressives should be supporting Kevin DeLeon. I should add, no significant Republican has entered this race at all. So this is really a Democrat versus Democrat contest. And California still has this top two system. The top two vote getters in the primary in June go on the ballot in November it seems like the same two will appear on both ballots and that they're each going to spend millions of dollars on this, doesn't it? That, that, yes, yes, it does. I wish uh, they would spend those millions of dollars on uh, registering and turning out voters in the flipping the Republican districts for the House. I imagine you do, too. I do, too, although I must say the fact that DeLeon is likely to be on the ballot in November and uh, in the governor's race, Antonio Villaraigosa is likely to be on the ballot in November, I think will produce a higher Latino turnout, which will have spillover effects in those congressional races. What are the political prospects for the Democrats recapturing the House in November? I think they're pretty good. Uh, they need to pick up, uh, is it 23 or 24 seats? Uh, I think most of the national polling gives them a, a, a lead uh, slightly in excess of 10%. Uh, I, I, I think they're pretty good. And I think also, I should add, with the Democrats now picking up a U.S. Senate seat in Alabama, I think they have a pretty good chance of, of uh, picking up uh, the Senate as well. And if we're talking about uh, Latino turnout, we should note that on Tuesday, the notorious Joe Arpaio announced he was running uh, for yes. the uh, open Senate seat in Arizona. I think that'll have a little effect boosting Latino turnout in Arizona as well. Harold Meyerson, read him at the American Prospect at prospect.org. Harold, it's been great having you on the show. Thank you. Great to be here, John. Thank you. Now it's time to talk about working with gang members. That's what Father Greg Boyle does here in L.A. Since he started Homeboy Industries in 1988, it's become the largest gang intervention program on the planet this month, more than 1,000 former gang members and previously incarcerated men and women will walk through the front doors of Homeboy Industries, seeking a second chance to develop the strength and skills to change their lives. Homeboy runs nine enterprises, a bakery, cafes at L.A.'s City Hall and LAX Airport, and they also run stalls at farmer's markets. Homeboy has also helped 147 other programs in the United States and 16 outside of the country. Recently, we went down to Homeboy Industries in L.A.'s Chinatown to talk to Greg Boyle about his new book, Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. Barking to the Choir, wonderful book 
full of great stories. I love the one about Jermaine in his mid-40s. He's so Jermaine is a guy who, after 20 years in prison, you find him to be gentle and kind, and you ask him, how did someone as gentle and kind and tender as you end up on high-control parole? Remember that? Yeah. And he says, um, rough childhood? And it just cracked me up. But it, it, his mom, uh, he was a prostitute and a drug addict, and the father died, and I think he was nine. And um, she rented an apartment, put uh, this kid and his two younger brothers in an apartment, and she, he never saw her again. And so uh, he would go down to different... Uh, people's homes and in the neighborhood and sit there and say we ain't leaving till you feed us mm. which just broke my heart and uh, he worked for us for a time he was a gentle good soul uh, let's talk about the title of your new book barking to the choir uh, it's it's you know you say you don't want this book to be homies say the darndest things, but really, I think you could have a bestseller with that title. This one is particularly kind of eloquent in the uh, the phrases it combines. Yeah, well, it was a, a homie from the bakery who was uh, kind of coloring outside the lines and late and bad attitude, so I called him in and I, uh, and I said, uh, uh, you know, kind of running it down to him, and then he... he uh, kind of stops me and he goes, relax, you're barking to the choir. <laughs> so he combined, it was a combo burger of, uh, of barking up the wrong tree and uh, preaching to the choir. I, I remember listening to, as when he said it, I said, oh my God, that's the title of my next <laughs> book. I don't care what anybody says. Your title is also about kinship. Kinship means something specific, something about members of, uh, of rival gangs. Well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of in the granular sense of things around here. It's enemies working together and discovering that they're, they're more united and, than divided. And, but uh, Homeboy wants to be what the world is ultimately invited to become, which is a community of kinship, a place where the illusion of separation is, is obliterated, you know, where there is no us and them, where there's just us connected to each other. So that's the goal. That's God's dream come true, I think. That's the only thing, I think, that will quench God's thirst, is that. You have an example of a guy you call Lorenzo, whose car broke down, and he calls his old uh, friends in the gang. That's right. And he was a baker, one of our bakers. And uh, he said that his car broke down in the middle of no damn where, he said. (laughs) And so he goes, I know you're not going to like this, but I called my homies, one homie after another. And, and, and they said, you know, I really can't right now. I'm at my Swagata's house or I'm at my whatever or, and uh, at my mother-in-law's house or whatever the excuse was. One, two, three, they just couldn't come and help him. So he didn't know what to do. So he called his worst enemy in the world who he works side by side with in the bakery. And uh, and the guy says, I'm on my way. Which it just, and when he said that, that sentence, I'm on my way, he just started to choke up. He couldn't even believe himself. 
that the guy, his worst enemy from the worst neighbor, from the worst enemy gang, worst rival, did. So it was a kind of an eye opener in terms of you discover a bond that's even deeper, even greater. So these are guys who uh, work together in the bakery. You used to say, nothing stops a bullet like a job, which <clears throat> always sounded fantastic, but you've sort of changed your thinking about that. Well, I mean, it sounds fantastic to us too, except that we've kind of grown beyond it. Because in the early days, all we did were jobs. So we didn't have our enterprises. We didn't have this program. We just dispatched gang members to employment. And we thought, there you go. Nothing stops a bullet like a job. But then we discovered that, you know, people, there was no healing and there was no resilience. So if anybody threw a monkey wrench into the life of this guy, say his lady leaves him or something like that, well, then, you know, suddenly he unravels. He goes back to to gang life. And... Um, so we, we thought, well, we're missing a piece. So we, we discovered on our own that an educated inmate may or may not uh, reoffend, and an employed one may or may not reoffend. But we came to this absolute guarantee that a healed gang member won't ever go back to prison, period. What kind of healing uh, is this? Healing from exactly from what? Well, every gang member who walks through our doors walks, comes in as what you might call a disorganized attachment. You know, mom was frightening or frightened, and you can't calm yourself down if you've never been soothed. So it's all about trauma. So the profile of kids who join gangs are the same, you know, you know despair, trauma, or mental illness. And, and they're on a continuum of severity. Some people more mentally ill than despondent, you know, or some more traumatized than mentally ill. So just as you would want as a society to, to, you know, infuse hope to kids for whom hope is foreign, or to heal the traumatized, or to deliver mental health services in a timely, culturally appropriate way, in the same way, gang members are still dealing with the same three things. So you want to find relief. And you want them to become friends with their own wounds so that they can cease to despise their own woundedness and despise the, the wounded other. And uh, so that's kind of a key thing. But once they do that, you know, healing ends in the graveyard for all of us. But, but the truth is there's a kind of essential foundational healing if you, if you surrender to it. And so we, you know, we figured 18 months because that's just the same time that some uh, kind of uh, developmental moment happens in the life of an infant. The same thing here. At the end, people, they're ready to separate. They're always going to be connected to us, for sure, you know. You quote in the book uh, one of your uh, homies who, who says, I guess I just got the wrong mom. Yeah. I mean, it... it it's his mom and their relationship was terrible. No father to speak of. This all sounds great, but I'm sure that people at Homeboy have problems at work. They don't show up. They screw up. They get high. They get violent. What, 
what do you, what happens then? What? Never. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like a rehab. You know, um, relapses happen. So you just, you know, when people test dirty, we try to, we don't want to work our, it's not about gotcha. It's about help you, you know. So if it's meth, we send them on to, to rehab. If they don't go to rehab, we say, come back when you're ready. We love you. And uh, how many who get sent away come back? Mostly all do. They all come back. In fact, right now I look out there and they're all folks who, some are graduates and some are wanting to come back, you know. And it's interesting because it doesn't work the first time, maybe not the second time, maybe the third time, you know. It's, in fact, the f guys who run the place are, are those profiles, you know, mm -hmm. who it took them three tries and then they... So it's, it, it's like rehab where you say, you know, they'll say at the end of a meeting, keep coming back, it works if you work it, you know. Let's talk about the police. Your, your work is all about uh, kids who kill kids. Uh, but, of course, we've all learned a lot about kids who get killed by the police, young black men, especially I'm from St. Paul, where a cop killed Philando Castile, wonderful young guy. If you ask the police, not so much here in L.A., since the department has changed so much, but police other places will tell you they want to make life miserable for gang members. Seems like you should be working with the police is well as the gang members, and maybe that's part of the reason the police in L.A. have changed so much over the last five or ten years. Yeah, I, you, know, you know, I've been doing this for 30 years, so I've seen the change in how the attitude of, of law enforcement has really been. It isn't what it used to be. And, um, but that's a tough nut to crack. You know, part of the thing is demonizing is always on truth. So 30 years ago, there was wholesale widespread demonizing of the gang members, especially on the part of law enforcement. So I always say the first 10 years was marked with death threats, bomb threats, hate mail, but, but never from gang members, but it was mainly from police. Hmm. Oddly enough, you know, the hate letters, anonymous hate letters would say, I'm a sheriff, I'm a cop, I'm LAPD. And I hate you, you know, you're part of the problem. You know, so it's a short hop to demonize, uh, if you demonize gang members, to demonize the person who helps them. So, but that has changed. You wouldn't really say that that's part of the landscape nowadays. But part of it is because the higher echelon leadership won't tolerate it, you know. But if they can get away with it, maybe they do. And it's kind of uh, how much can that trickle down from the leadership down to the rank and file? But it's, it's simply not what it used to be. But that's, that's kind of the, how unsophisticated law enforcement can tend to be. And I don't know how do you address that un lack of sophistication. Because it, for them, it's all about get the bad guy. Well, if there really are no bad guys, I've been doing this for a long time, I've never met one, you'd think I, I have met one, you know? Like right now, I just had these kids, four kids in a car came in, knuckleheads, you know? But you look at them and they're orphans, they're mentally ill, they're hugely traumatized, they, they're, they're utterly despondent. But I can't find a single, I can't find badness in them, you know? And that's not because I'm naive. I, I would like to think that 
that that's a sophisticated take on these guys, you know. And but if they're the bad guys, then it doesn't really matter if you have a case. It doesn't really matter if you had reason to stop them. It doesn't really matter even if this guy goes to prison for the rest of his life and you know d this detective knows that he didn't do it, but you know, he's the bad guy. So how could it possibly matter, mm -hmm. you know? You have some fabulous quotes in the book from Hafez. I, I don't remember a book of Hafez in the Bible. Well, Hafez, it's one of the Sufi poets, and there are lots of them, and he's a favorite of my Rumi and lots of people. Yeah. I also wanted to ask about your uh, health. You were diagnosed with leukemia about 15 years ago. You, I know you have a, a, a cold today, but how are you doing otherwise? Oh, I'm fine. So it's a chronic thing over the 15 years of probably usually every other year I have to do something, immunotherapy or radiation or, you know, I've done chemo. So there's, you know, you just, it happens, you do it, you take a time out and handle it and come back. So double bacon cheeseburgers will probably kill me before leukemia does. In the early days, uh, homies would come in. I, I hear your cancer's in intermission, you know. And I'd say, yes, apparently it's stepped out to the lobby to buy popcorn. Greg Boyle, the founder of Homeboy Industries, his new book is Barking to the Choir, The Power of Radical Kinship. It's a wonderful book. Thanks for talking with us today, and thanks for everything you do. Thank you, John. It's been an honor. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. That's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about New York City and sports in the 60s, Broadway Joe Namath, the amazing Mets, and some unusual political developments. Dave also talks about the morality of watching football on TV. That's this week on Dave Zirin's new Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash edge of sports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. <laughs>